Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So I think this is one of the problems is that it's so easy nowadays to avoid and, and turn away. And I like to think of it, as, it's almost like our mental muscle. Either you can train it and you can train that that mental muscle to turn that alarm down or you train it to turn it up. And whenever we avoid things, we train to turn that alarm up because our brain goes, oh, we're avoiding this. This must actually be dangerous. It, you know, it's hilarious because we think, and again, we think of the hard things as like, oh, I'm going to go, you know, do this crazy exercise or, you know, put myself through this miserable experience. And the hard thing is, is just literally doing nothing. Hello and welcome to the Life Lessons Podcast with me, Simon Mundy. This podcast has a simple mission, to have discussions that reveal something important about life and how best to live it. My guests range from the biggest sporting names on the planet through to neuroscientists, philosophers, psychologists and world-renowned thinkers. We talk about things like how to skillfully relate to uncomfortable thoughts and feelings, the power of acceptance and psychological flexibility, how to get your circadian rhythms in sync to feel your best, right through to the nature of reality. These conversations and the bite-sized episodes have the power to change your life. Alberto Salazar was once the most revered running coach in the world, leading athletes including Mo Farah to the very top of their game. But in 2019, Salazar was banned from athletics for violating anti-doping rules. This week's guest, Steve Magnus, had worked alongside him at the Nike Oregon Project, and he was the whistleblower whose claims were followed up by a BBC Panorama and ProPublica investigation, leading ultimately to Salazar's downfall. It's fascinating to hear Steve explain his role in what is a truly incredible tale. While he says being a whistleblower led to a traumatic nine-year period of his life, he says he doesn't regret it. And what he learned during that time informed his most recent book called Do Hard Things. He busts myths around toughness and resilience. Toughness isn't about projecting confidence, for example. It's about uncovering authenticity. Steve encourages people to question what doing hard things really means – It's not just about the more obvious stuff like running marathons and taking ice baths, but about being authentic, having hard conversations, through to sitting still and doing nothing. I thoroughly enjoyed speaking to Steve, and I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation. 
Steve Magnus, what an absolute delight to have you on the show. Lovely to see your face. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing great. Thanks so much. Really looking forward to talking with you. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on. Uh, I've already told you this before we started recording, but I'll say it again. I'm a huge fan of yours for a number of reasons. And we'll get to that actually more specifically in a second. But, you know, we are talking as well about your book, Do Hard Things, Why We Get Resilience Wrong and the Surprising Science of Real Toughness. And it really resonated hugely with me. I think rethinking hard things and examining why it's good to take the, should we say, the road less traveled in all its forms. Is that a fair sort of synopsis in one line? Yeah. I mean, it's impossible to s- summarize a book in one line, but I think that does a good, I think, I think the key is in all its forms, which brings like the nuance of it. You're not just saying like, you know, go down this path that looks horrible all the time. You're saying, you know, there's a lot of paths, like figure it out, you know? Yes. And I know this is your fourth book. Yes. Crikey. I mean, that's doing hard things a lot, Steve. I know you've got a masochistic streak with your running, but that's a hell of an output you've got there. And they're hard things books. Yeah, yeah no, books are, are not the funnest. They're fun at first until you get into the weeds. It, it kind of like is like running where you sign up for the race. You're like, this is great. And then you get in the middle of it and you're like, why in the world did I do this? So... I, I think there is a little of that masochistic. Maybe, maybe as my running, you know, it has gone down a little bit. It's, uh, it's the book writing that fulfills that. Maybe, absolutely. And actually, it's interesting. I was reflecting on running, so I don't run as much as I would like because I've got a bit of a gammy hip and I've had knee surgery. But when I do run, I don't run with music and I don't run with headphones or anything like that. And I've realised. When reflecting, I was thinking about it after reading your book or while reading your book. And what I love about running, actually, and I think I said this to a friend of mine recently, is like, I hate running. I'm like, yeah, but that's kind of the point for me is like the pain is actually where the good stuff is. Because if I go for a run and I've put myself through pain, yeah, you get the, the hormone release and all that stuff and it clears the head. I don't think it's anything better. But actually, that sense of satisfaction of having not given in to that whining voice in the head saying please stop just stop why don't you stop here that is where the beauty of it is for me yeah i i'm in agreement you know i always tell people i said well running is like it's you alone in your head dealing with the barrage of like emotions and thoughts and that voice telling you to quit or find a hole to step in or whatever it is right and you you have to navigate it and there are so few moments in the rest of our life where we're just, we just have to kind of go through that difficult part. Like everything else we can kind of say like, oh no, no, I'm going to, I'm going to avoid this. Or like, I'm just going to make this a little bit easier and more comfortable. And I think that's, that's part of it is there's something valuable of just going through those moments and being like, all right, like we got to figure this out. And when you get on on the other side, it does give you that satisfaction. And I think it also kind of trains that mental muscle where you can take that to other aspects of your life. A hundred percent. I know I've had a good start to the day. If I have a run followed by meditation, just follow the breath, because that's also hard. And then I'll hop in a cold bath after a shower. That's my little thing. I get a buzz on that. I know then I've done three quote unquote hard things and the day is bound to sort of unfold more often than not in a positive manner thereafter. Yeah, I think that's spot on. And you know, it's it's interesting. The 
the hopping and the the cold plunges have have kind of taken off recently. And I'm convinced that the reason isn't like necessarily any physiological thing. I think it's basically because it's hard. It's it it sucks to jump in that every morning or like go in that. Your your brain's like, get me out of here. What are you doing? And I think there's just something so yes, there's physiology to it, but I think there's something just so simple and important important in setting up the day where it's like, okay, I went through something. Like now I can like have this energy to take to the other projects or other things that matter in my life. So things like that are some of the more obvious hard things. But then there's the whole other side. And for me, there are things like, you know, having hard conversations is a great one. And this is where I want to just bring in your story a bit, because I think taking a decision, a very moral decision in the face of people, your own family, lawyers saying, Steve, don't do this, don't do this. And of course, you know, I'm referring to you being the guy who called out Alberto Salazar and I've forgotten the name of it. it the Yeah, the Nike Oregon Project. The Nike Oregon Project, yes. Yeah. So Alberto obviously considered to be for a while this magician athletics trainer and then it turned out perhaps it was a little more nefarious and underhand than that. Actually, after reading your book, I watched some stuff around Mary Kane and the abuse stuff. Truly shocking stuff. A really dark way of operating. And you were a young guy. You were, what, like mid-20s. You'd been this promising young runner. And then Alberto had got in touch and said, come hang with me at this thing. You're like, hey, dream job. And then in time, you're like, actually, whoa, there's some dodgy stuff going on here. And maybe if you want to pick up the story at this point, because... Maybe from what was the first recognition through to the time where you thought, okay, I can't ignore my conscience. I've got to do the right thing, which is the hard thing. Yeah, absolutely. So you set it up well because you go in with the the idea that it, it was my dream job. It was like I hit the lottery. And what happens because of that expectation is you start seeing things or I started seeing things where I'm like, well, hold on a minute. Like, you know this is a little bit sketchy. Like, why are we trying to fool doctors to get asthma medication? Or why are we trying to, like, why is Alberto handing out, you know, prescription medications to people who haven't been prescribed them, you know? And and just things like that where it's just, like, a little weird. And what you do is you just kind of rationalize and justify in the moment. You're just like, well, you know, maybe he has this, this, and this reason. And, and that's what you do at first. And it's really weird looking back because we like to think of things as, oh, like it's black and white. I'm either like this moral ethical person or I'm, I'm not. And if I see something, I'm going to say something, but the reality of life is often much messier. So initially it was all that until over time, what happened is more and more things came up and there was, you know, injection of substances. There was you know, treatment of athletes, uh, this is all widely documented, but treatment of athletes and just, just crazy stuff. I remember, you know, maybe one story to get to your listeners, which was right before I left is I remember after it was after a world athletics indoor championship and we're having kind of a review after the, the meet, the competition on how athletes did. And Alberto's talking about one athlete who made their first world championship team 
And all of a sudden, he just goes on this rant of like, she's too fat, like her ass is too big, like blah, blah, blah. She needs to lose weight. And I'm just like, I'm looking at this and I like, I'm the data, I'm a data science guy. So I'm like, well, we, we have all this data. Like, let me look at her like legitimate in the Nike lab, like scientific body fat testing. And it's at like the lowest level that you could be a female without being essentially in a bad spot health wise crazy low body fat and I like point this out I'm like well here's the data and it says this and he's like you know I don't give a damn what the data says I know what I see with my eyes and I'm just like okay like we've crossed the world into where you know some person's perception is more important than just like what is black and white what is truly black and white data and I remember that like those were the kind of moments where I'm just like holy crap Whatever, what have we been doing? What have, you know, I've been pushed through to do? And it, it, it was kind of a light bulb moment of like, okay, I need to get out of here first. And your, your instinct, again, after you get out of here, you say, well, where do you get this moral decision? Your instinct after you get out of there is like, I want nothing to do with this. Like, I don't want to ruin my life. Like, let me just get out of here. I don't like forget everything. But then over time, what happens is, underneath there's just this this like underlying current that is like eating you away and being like well you know should you say something what you experienced was not right like it crossed some boundaries and some lines and some anti-doping lines and everybody around me it was telling me like just move on like get done and and for rightful reason including your family right including your parents yeah yeah, and my parents, and they were they were trying to. Well, why would they tell that? It's not that they're immoral people; it's they were trying to protect you. Because it's like they're just like, dude, do you want to take on like this big organization in this like legend and sport? You are essentially a nobody. You're going to get railroaded because that's what our society is, unfortunately, a lot of times. So they were telling me stay quiet, but eventually, again, it was kind of. I remember. The moment actually pretty clearly is other people were starting to join the the project after I'd left, including, you know, there were talks of, I don't remember the timeline exactly, but Mary Kane joining. And at that time, she was like 16, 17 years old. So just, just for a quick bit of context, because obviously she's not as well known over here, but she was like this prodigy runner, the best runner in America of her age, like great things could have come of her, right? Yeah, exactly. She is like the the superstar you know, for you guys, that footballer who you look at at 16, 17, who is just like, oh my gosh, this is the next Lionel Messi or whoever it is. That was her kind of performance, like once in a generation. I remember see, hearing, you know, okay, she's going to join. And I just remember thinking like, oh my dear God, like this is the worst match ever. Like this is a 16-year-old, 17-year-old girl who's just has no idea what she's getting into. And situations like that where I was just like I just gotta talk this is eating me away eating away at me because if I don't say anything I'm gonna feel so guilty if I do say anything bad stuff might happen to me but at least people will know and at least people will like can make a decision versus when I went into it like I had no idea I thought I was hitting the dream job and I'm like I'm sure all these other people who are put in that situation think the same way so at least I'm going to put it out there 
And that's kind of, I, I did it without telling anybody. And I just reached out to in, in the U.S. is U.S. anti-doping. And I said, here's what I experienced. Here's some info. If you want to follow it up, like I'm here to talk. And of course, they, they called me up and were like, well, let's hear everything. So that's how it started down that journey. Just a quick on Mary Kane. Like I said, I watched a video and she's done this four or five minute video where she talks about her experience. And it is truly horrifying because she was pestered around her weight and was just so thin. Her period stopped for a couple of years. She started self-harming. She spoke about having you know, suicidal thoughts. It was seriously disturbing. And so we all, I think, want to think that in those kind of situations, we would do the hard thing, which is the right thing. But actually, very few people would. And so that's part of the reason I, I so admire what you did do going up against the giant proper David V. Goliath stuff. Can you just tell me, like, when it did blow up? Because I know it went on for a long time. You're still, you're a 20s, right? And as far as I'm concerned, when you're in your 20s, you're young, you know, you're not, I certainly wasn't fully mature. And so I know that you had people trying to intimidate you and come into your house. I mean, how did you cope throughout that period and how long did it go on for? Yeah. So it went on from the moment that I blew the whistle um, until it finally ended. It took nine years. Wow. And that is not something I expected, but it was tough to cope with. Because you're right, like, you know, I remember when it first blew up, I mean, I had people come into my house. I remember I had to, like, look out the windows and everything to make sure that I could, like, pull my car out and go to work without a reporter or, or whoever. I had people that show up to my work at that time. I had people when I went to, I mean, I was coaching athletics at that point, so... Um, I'd show up to track meets and I'd get, you know, uh, intimidated by random people would just come up to me and people at, at, you know, Salazar came up to me once, Nike came up, to people would come up to me and it was just, you know, intimidation. I mean, one time the, the probably surrealist moment was I was backing out of my car and, and two guys in suits tap on my, on my, my car window and it's literally the FBI. And, and in my head, I'm just like, like, what is this? Am I in a movie? Like, this is nuts. And then you have to go through like all sorts of arbitration and, and horrible. I mean, this, you just get grilled for hours by everybody. So it sucked. And it was not, not easy. In a lot of ways, it felt like a part of I had to compartmentalize it because you're right. In your 20s, you're not a child, but you're still clueless and you still have a lot of times no perspective on life. So I had to like compartmentalize on like, okay, here's my actual life over here. And then here's this thing that is just going to be underlying that I'm always, that I'm going to go through for the foreseeable future. And it's always going to be a stressor. And I have to do my best to kind of contain it in this box, because if I let it infiltrate everything else, I'm going to be miserable. So it was, it was, it was tough because every decision I made um, from you know, every decision from what, especially with work, you know, I remember being 27, 28, working at a university and being like, if I ever want to move every job interview I got or whatever, I'd have to be like, okay, well, I have to tell you about this thing that is still going on because, you know, I'm going to get pulled away and have to leave or like have to fly across. The FBI might be coming around. Right. 
like there were little moments where I'm like, I'm going to have to miss work because I have to go in and get interviewed by the FBI. But those are the things. And you just have to you just have to hope that like your boss or whoever is like understanding in those moments. Those were the conversations. So like every aspect of my life is like it's like whenever we had a new um, new boss at the university in charge of stuff, I remember being like, and it, it happened like three or four times while I was there for the, the decade. And I'd be like, all right, I got to go in and have this conversation with this guy and explain this crazy thing and just hope they get it. And every time it was kind of, it was wild. When you were going through the rough times and, you know, you said it was nine years and you've got the FBI knocking on your window and everything like that. Were you sustained that whole time by the knowledge that from a conscientious point of view, from a morality point of view, you were doing what in your heart you knew to be right, despite the difficulty? So that thought was always present and always something that I went back to. But much like we talked about in running, I'll use this analogy, is you know that maybe you signed up for the race and it's a good thing that you're doing. But that negative voice is always present. So during those times, there were some moments and sometimes some dark moments where it's just like, okay, I know this is, I did this for the right reasons and this is going to help. But you're just like, hell, this sucks. This is ruining X, Y, and Z. Is this really worth it? You know, that's where it becomes difficult. That's where the, the tough moments would lie is your life kind of felt chaotic and at times lost because... I can look back now because it's over and say, well, it took nine years. But when I'm in year five and I'm like, could take in five years, it's still going through it. When is this going to end? I'm ready to move on with the next chapter of my life and not have to think about this, like always present in my world. Those moments, some of those were, were not fun and dark and your mind goes to a bad place. So when it eventually got to that point where you were vindicated and Salazar was exposed and then later exposed again, but he was first done from a doping point of view and then later from an abuse point of view, more recently, in fact. But when he was initially exposed, how did you feel at that point? So a lot of people have asked me this and they always think like, oh, you probably feel like vindicated and overjoyed or whatever. And honestly, it was just relief. I was just like, okay, things turned out. I am done. I can now finally close this chapter of my life in terms of like actively participating. I don't mind talking about it, but like in terms of actively thinking about this and just having that little voice in the back of your head of like, well, what's going to happen? Well, what if this? What if that? And again, it was kind of like a weight came off my shoulder where I'm like, okay, I don't have to carry this burden anymore. It's off me. Yeah. Is it fair to say that that whole experience as well changed your values? Because I know that, you know, you were a competitive runner. I know when you were young, you were like trying to break the mythical four minute mile. And I know now that you run not to compete, but just for the joy of running. And actually, this is something I bang on about a bit is we all get into sport or our favorite sport or music or, or art or whatever it is. Because we love it. And it's only later that competing in the trophies and the becoming a winner comes a thing. And it's like you've gone full circle back to that, just loving it for its own sake and seeing through the kind of illusion of it's about trophies. It's about aggrandizing your image and all that crap. 
Yeah, a- absolutely. I mean, I, I think that's a perfect analogy as is, is I have come full circle. And I'll admit it, absolutely, at, at certain points in my life, like that competing, that winning was almost the only thing, right? And what you quickly realize is that it's almost kind of like all a facade, right? A- especially having gone through this, I'm like, well, legitimately growing up, Alberto Salazar was probably a hero of mine. Like I read all his books and like all the articles and like knew his career inside and out because he was just this famous runner who was just so tough and would run himself almost to death. And you like look up to that as a young runner. But having gone through this, what it makes you realize is like all the accolades, achievements, the success, the quote unquote success, that's all superficial kind of BS. Yeah, sure, it can feel good, but is it what really matters? What I'm saying is like, not like, hey, forget all the success, but from what I found is if you focus on that joy and love of the thing and almost take that craftsman-like approach, where it's just, I just love doing this, then success will probably find you in some way because like you're doing good work because you enjoy it. I mean, it's no different than than writing like I don't write to make some bestseller list I'm just like this is an interesting topic I want to explore it like let's write about it and figure it out and if you do that and you enjoy it like the success will come yeah totally a friend of mine tweeted something like if you could share any message to children what would it be and my response is along this theme which is that to understand that your worth is intrinsic you know, actually pieces your nature and therefore life can become an expression of that rather than a search for it. And I think that's kind of what you're saying there, isn't it? It's like, if you do what you you love, yeah, success may be a byproduct, probably will. You know, we know that when we're relaxed and in the flow and all that, you know, we play better, for example, at sport, but you know, you're coming from a place of, of wholeness and sharing that rather than seeking for the trophies to fill that hole, which even if you get the trophy, you'll never do it. It, it. Exactly. You're spot on there. And I think, you know, whenever I have conversations like this, I go to the, there's this wonderful research that shows essentially where you go into that seeking mode and that filling hole mode, what it does is it, it makes your identity fragile because you are dependent on success, achievement, those trophies or whatever to f- feel whole. There's some wonderful research that shows when people go in that spot, they are more likely to cheat. They are more likely to use performance enhancing drugs in sport. They're more likely to bend rules. Why? Because they need, they feel they need to like fill that hole so badly that they're willing to throw out all of their ethics and morals because they're just like, this is the key. And inevitably what happens is they sometimes reach that goal, maybe like a Lance Armstrong, who, you know, won so many Tour de France's and then they realize, hey, this doesn't make me feel content. I'm still kind of miserable trying to chase this thing. It's almost like that never ending drug they're always searching for. Absolutely. I always wonder if Lance, you always wanted to get found out, but that's a whole nother thing. But so many people build up, don't they, this kind of persona in their own heads, their own self-image, and then how they're perceived by others. And then maintaining this image that is ultimately a complete fiction rather than like you say finding that kind of unshakable piece if you like within which is there and then 
just expressing it in, and you know, you run, that's your thing. However you want to express that, that's fine, but come from that place. Right, final question on this, Steve, before we leap into your book. And the book and your experiences, it just struck me how closely linked they are. But my final question on this would be, to what degree has your view of athletics and sports been tarnished? Because Salazar's obviously taken a hit, but now there are a lot of people who there's still a cloud of suspicion over it, and I'm sure you probably know a lot more, and I'm not going to press you for that, but I am going to press you for what's your view of, of sport as a result, an elite sport. Yeah, you know, you're right. It, it does kind of tarnish and cloud your view because if you are to wear, it can make you deeply pessimistic because you can be like, well, um, is what I'm watching real or, or not? Or is this all kind of fake? And what I've tried to do, because I love athletics, I love sport as a whole, is I've tried to say, you know what, I'm just going to take the good bits and the bits that I feel good at, you know, that I feel pretty confident in and like cheer and watch for those and those that I don't feel good about and that maybe have some controversy around them or just, you know, honestly, sometimes it's even like this just doesn't feel real. Then I just, you know, ignore that. Part. And, you know, I'm a I'm a I'm lucky that I'm a little bit on the inside, but like you learn over time kind of like who are the good athletes or coaches or the good, you know, the people doing it the right way. I support and cheer for and celebrate those people as a fan and the people who maybe are in kind of a little bit sketchier situations or camps or groups or or have shown, I don't know, some signs of of something. Then I just say, you know what? I'm just not going to give you much attention. And if you do something great, whatever. Like, it doesn't bring me any joy as a fan. I'm just going to, like, wait to the next race. So that's kind of how I handle it. It's not perfect, but I think it's my way to, to keep from going, like, totally pessimistic and being like, oh, this race is meaningless or, or what have you because, like, so-and-so is is part of a sketchy group and, like, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, people who perhaps are engaged in nefarious means and perhaps are lying outwardly and to themselves, you know, you spoke about the, the weight coming off your shoulders. They must sense that too. I remember watching a clip once uh, about, it's actually about infidelity. And it was like someone who's cheats on their partner, you know, they're going to pay in one form or other. Their partner might not know, but you're going to pay in one form or other, maybe, you know, in true intimacy or been out of sleep well at night you know and so but anyway you've got to make your bed and, and lie in it so to go from alberto to this book it was ringing somewhat in my mind what you went through it because you start the book talking about the tyrant leader the guy who or the woman who will come in and be like right i know best you do this you do that and by the way i'm going to be looking over your shoulder and if you don't do it you're out in your ear so kind of that fear-based thing we all know leaders like that. You know, I've certainly experienced that and how demoralizing it can be as opposed to real leadership or a real strength, which is hard, which is to empower people and create an environment in which actually you're allowing people to, to flourish and step up and be their best self, which means you've got to not put yourself up on that big pedestal like an Alberto did. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's 
The, the, it's funny. I don't write about the uh, my experience or Alberto in this book, but his influence and the influence of it rings through. Uh, you know, the shadow design. Yeah, I could sense that. Yeah. So when I did that intentional because I started re- writing this book before the other the other thing was actually finished. So I was like, I'm not touching it. But you're right, and I think so much what we do is we have this misconception where we see we almost hold up these these kind of authoritarian leaders as like oh, well, they have a lot of power and control and they're tough or whatever have you. So maybe this way is the way to do it. But if you look at the research and then you look at actual people's experience, you ask them and you say like, well, do you perform your best when you are like afraid of your boss and afraid of doing the wrong thing or afraid of, you know, if you you mess up in any way, it could be fired? Of course not. Like 99% of people don't. And the research backs this up. What it really is, is how do I create the environment where people have the freedom to perform and to utilize their skills? And what it what what the research kind of shows clearly is it's not like, hey, I'm going to be totally soft and a player's coach or whatever have you, however you want to say it's it's accompanying, you know, maybe some high expectations but having enough support and responsiveness and care and melding those two that really gets you the good stuff. And I think far too often what we do is we just forget that support, care, responsiveness, and and that puts us in a, in a bad spot. Just as you were saying that, it made me think actually of parenting. Behaving like that, A, is not right, and B, is not going to serve you in the long run. So holding them to a standard, but doing it with a sense of, by the way, there's nothing you can do that can stop me loving you, you know? It's that amalgamation, right? Right, exactly. This is why I love I love the research and the understanding of parenting because it is that. It's like the person needs to know, well, why does that work as a parent? Because the kid knows that like, no matter what, I love you, support you, and want the best for you. And that is where this maybe sometimes like this telling you not to do something or directing you in this way that, you know, Maybe you don't feel feel good about it as a kid. The reason that's coming from a place of, I love and support you and want the best for you. Well, the same thing applies in leading, coaching for executives is maybe it's not love, but it's, I see you more than just a cog in the wheel. You are a person that I value and I want you to grow with this company as well. And I value that growth. This is why maybe I'm giving you criticism or feedback or what have you. It's not because you're just another number and I don't care and I can get rid of you at all points. And the the interesting part is there to tie it back to that parenting is if you look at if you don't have that kind of responsiveness, support, care, etc., is the the kind of high expectations, dictatorial kind of style backfires on everything that you think it it would work in. Discipline is worse. Emotional control is worse. Why? Simple. Because if you're kind of that authoritarian, the child learns like, okay, I'm going to avoid doing this stuff when mom or dad is around, but I'm going to figure out a way how to get around this, you know, so that I can still be who I am and live my life or what have you. So they're actually just learning avoidance instead of howling to deal with or navigate maybe criticism or critique or whatever whatever it is. Yeah, well said. So you come up with these four core pillars related to doing hard things, and we'll dig through them. And, and the first one, ditching the facade, embracing reality. And you talk about this 
persona that everyone has to a degree, right? We all walk around with this mask that we wear and the firmer you grasp that mask, the worse it's going to be when it slips, right? So yeah, you can't, this nice thing, don't you, is, is understand what you're capable of and also understand what the demands of something are going to be. So could you just try to explain that better than I could and, and then let's dig into it a bit? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think on that mask, one of uh, my good friends who's in the military put it put it best. He said, like, whenever stress and reality smacks you in the face, that mask is going away. <laughs> and, and that's that's true. It's like whenever we, you know, you put through something really stressful, like you can't hold on to that mask. It's like whoever you are underneath is coming out. And that kind of is what it is is instead of focusing on like well let's create this external bravado and this mask and i look tough and strong and like deal with you yourself the inner strength and in what you're kind of capable of and that's where i get to this kind of formula i guess is what i would say is we really need overlap between your perception of what you're capable of so knowing your skills knowing what you can handle knowing that you know how to cope with things versus the demand that you're facing. And and we don't need it perfectly overlapped, but we need some reality in there where it's like, okay, I'm going to have to give this big presentation or uh you know, I'm going to have to enter this race. Well, I'm capable of this because I've done the work, because I've put in the hours, because I've practiced or prepared or what have you. So, I don't know if I'm going to win or not. I don't know if I'm going to, you know, knock it out of the park or not. But I know that I am capable of, you know, X and I know that the task is Y and there's enough overlap where I can feel like I can take that step and really push forward. And where we go wrong is where we try and just kind of bolster our our sense of self by just like external fake stuff and be like, I got this. No problem. It's like the kid who shows up for the uh, for the game and says like oh i'm the best soccer player ever i've i i've got this i'm a great athlete and they haven't practiced where they're gonna get schooled by someone who has less talent but has put in the work the same goes for the rest of our our life is that we want that overlap so that we don't kind of spiral to freak out once reality smacks us in the face so you say something don't you about Confidence is quiet and insecurity is loud, something like that. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think, in, and we all kind of know this, and you see this online as, as well as the people who yell the loudest are often often the most insecure. Why? Because they're trying to essentially prove to themselves like, oh, I am confident. I do this, got this. The people who know, and I've seen this so often at, in athletics and sport is like, when you know what you're capable of, you're just like, yeah, this is going to be tough, but like, I know what I can do. I don't need to tell you what I, I can do. I know when I get on the starting line, I'm capable of this. And I think that's what you see with the rest of life is that those who have that kind of quiet, secure confidence, they're not trying to prove to the rest of the world because they know themselves. They're like, I put in the work. I can do this. I can show up. And you talk about, I don't know if this is a direct quote, but certainly this is something that's to be about true confidence being around acceptance. So a quote that I quite like, this isn't from your book, around never defend yourself, right? So let's say someone says, you know, you suck at cooking, right? And instead of going, no, like, how dare you? It's like, you're damn right. I'm worse than bad. When there's nothing to bash up against, it just passes right on through. 
Now, obviously, we don't know this as a youngster, but it relates, I think, to, as someone else once said to me, of getting secure with your insecurities. Because once you're, once you're okay with your demons and your insecurities, which we all have, because we're all conditioned by experience and society and all this stuff, then you're pretty much bulletproof. Embrace your warts and all, and that's where confidence is paradoxically. It, exactly. I love that example and that quote because it, it's spot on. And if you even look at some of the psychology and neuroscience, it shows the same thing. Like whenever we resist something, it comes back tenfold. Whenever we resist something, what we're signaling is the brain is like, oh, look at this, this, like he's getting, I'm getting defensive. This must mean that like, this is important to me you get stuck in kind of this threat or defend mode instead of this kind of like, well, you know what, except let it pass on by, world's not going to end. And what happens too often is we get in those situations where we just get in defend mode. What we're doing is we're kind of defending our sense of self and our identity. And you see this again with any hot button, you know, conversation is like, People defend it to the death because their their literal area in their brain that is like the threat detecting machinery like goes through the roof. It treats us as if we were in physical danger, as if a lion was coming up on us when someone tells us like our our cooking sucks or that like you know whatever it is we're horrible at it and we're like no we're not because like we're feeling attacked. Well, the way to do that isn't to you know, defend, it's to turn that alarm down by being like, whatever, like you can tell me my cooking stuff sucks. Like it probably does, but it's not like a central part of who I am as a person. Like there's space between that, you know? whatever like you can tell me my cooking stuff sucks like it probably does but it's not like a central part of who i am as a person like there's space between that you know absolutely yeah I, it made me think there's um a thing going on on, on social media um and more broadly at the moment around like, who's the greatest tennis player of all time Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, and you've got your people in each camp, and they argue viciously, right? And it's bound up in their identity. My identity is I support this guy, and so it feels like an existential threat when their belief, i.e. a thought, about who is the best is challenged, even though it's got absolutely nothing to do with them. You know, when you look at it in the cold light of day, it's it's a sort of form of insanity, really. And um, identity is something that, that crops up occasionally in this, and this is... The subject that I find sort of really interesting and how it relates to the ego and the beliefs and all that kind of stuff. But so what is your take on then? I know you talk about secure but flexible, but identity and how to, from your point of view, manage it or do whatever you need to do to be as secure as possible. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I love that example because it's like such a meaningless argument. But people take it so real and that applies to everything. So here's, here's what I think on identity, okay? What we need is like, as you kind of said there, secure but flexible. What does that mean? It means the moment you start responding in an argument or whenever someone like makes a comment or whatever on something that is important to you, if you go straight to that defense mode, that means whatever that thing is probably too large a part of your sense of self. 
And we need to create space between that. Even on the things that, that we like love and care about, you know, the things that we do, like me as a writer or you um, and speaking, whatever it is, like, yes, they are central to us, but they can't be the only thing. So step one, I think, is creating a little space between who you are and what you do. And then the other thing that I think is really important from my identity standpoint is like diversify those sources of of self and, and meaning. And I, I love this quote from uh, the Stanford neurobiologist Robert Sapolsky, who essentially said with identity and he and and he was talking about status, he said, it's part of being humans. We all need status. We all need to feel like, you know, our sense of self is bolstered. But he said the wonderful thing is we can get that from anywhere. So his quote was kind of like, you can get that from being the star lawyer in your office, or you can get the same literal biological effect by instead of being the star in the office, being the star on the company softball team. And what I love about that is it is like, we think that we have to have like this grand, big, whatever. But to me, it's like, with your sense of self is have a lot of things in your life that have some sort of meaning and purpose and, and bring you maybe a little bit of status so that when someone says like, you know, Steve, you know, you're a horrible writer. I can be like, okay, like that's, you know, that's fine. But like, you know, it's not entirely who I am because I also have these, all these other things that mean a lot to me in life and I have all these other pursuits so if you want to think I'm a horrible writer that's no big deal that's fine no not a problem I mean that's where we want to get to isn't it where let's say our sense of self almost can't be threatened and this is one of those and moments I mentioned earlier in the around identity is that I completely agree you know it's like we have these pillars of interest things that we value things that are important to us all that kind of stuff uh, things we like to do, skills, ways of looking at the world, whatever. But I would even argue though, and this has been a bit of a journey, a big journey that I've been on, it, it is actually around just challenging this whole idea of, of needing an identity full stop. Now, what I mean by that is I look at my cats, right? And they strut around and, you know, they are as as chilled and as secure as, as anyone I know. But obviously they don't have that self-concept that we do. And we put such stock in our self-image, our self-concept, our idea of ourselves, which is born obviously of the things we do, but also the beliefs we have. And so many different things come together, you know, a mixture of thoughts and feelings and all that kind of stuff. But all I would argue is that, and I think this relates a little bit to self-talk as well, which I know you talk about. This isn't to disagree at all because there's just different ways of looking at these things. But the voice in our head that comes up, whether it goes, hey, you, you're great, high self-esteem, or you suck, low self-esteem, that voice is still not who we are. Whether it's good or bad, and obviously it's nicer that it's good, but if it's bad, it's actually two sides of the same coin because, and a little thought experiment is, you know, if you have a quiet mind for five seconds, that's you, you're like, yeah, that's me. And then the voice comes up and goes, oh, hey, I haven't said anything in a while. And then it goes away again and you've got five seconds and that's still you. It's like, well, so what does that imply about the voice? It implies that you're there without the voice. Therefore, like the ego, which is where we get our identity, is not fundamental to who we are. That doesn't mean we don't need it to operate in the world, but actually it's not actually who we are. Does that make sense to you? 
Yeah, what you're essentially describing, if I think I'm hearing you right, is is almost like the Buddhist idea of non-self, that the self is like essentially a delusion. And I think there's a lot of value and truth to that. And and I would agree where I tried to come from this in terms of especially those voices in your head is like the Western idea is if you walked around and you told people like, hey, there's no self, most people in the West will be like, what are you talking about, man? Like, what are you talking about? So a big part is like, well, and I'm, you know, I, I get it. I come from the West. I've studied Buddhism a little bit, but not, I'm no expert, but it's like, so you meet people where you're at. So I think, I think part of it is like, yes, in an ideal world, do we move towards a non-self ideal? Probably. I mean, there's probably a lot of uh, good data that shows that like that would probably make us a healthier, happier, not as crazy human being. Is that realistic for most people in the West? I don't know yet because of cult- cultural stuff. But but one thing I would say is you can get at these ideas. And this is, you know, I was talking to a good friend who essentially said, you know, your book is kind of like it, it you know, it, it underlies a lot of Buddhist principles that are hidden in non-Buddhist language. I would agree with that because like there's other ways we can frame this. For instance, on the self-talk, instead of seeing it as like, no self whatsoever, maybe a more hospitable take for someone in the West is to say, hey, you've got all these voices and they all represent like very different, like tiny little fractions of yourself, which means like you don't have like not all of them are valid. Like some of them are like your, you know, crazy aunt or uncle who rants on Facebook. Some of them are just like that hyperactive self that is just like, I'm afraid of everything and I'm going to let Steve know that there's danger everywhere where we know like, you know, okay, like overactive, you know, child self, like just calm, calm the F down. And I think, again, that's a a different way that doesn't quite get it at the same way, but maybe might be a little bit more palatable to some people. So to me, it's like, I'm all about, you know, kind of, okay, if the goal is here to get people to deal with their inner world a little bit better. How do we just like give them lots of different tools to just like, let's nudge you this way instead of shooting for perf- perfection. Let's like get you away from maybe the, the Western model of like that facade, the Instagramification of self and towards something that is a little bit more healthy and, and valuable. Steve, that was a quite beautiful answer, by the way. That was so well put, I think. I love your idea of meeting people where they're at and trying to nudge people along the spectrum. But that leads me on. So just in terms of going towards discomfort, this is such a valuable thing. And perhaps we've spoken about it, whether it be in terms of you leaning into, okay, I'm going to ignore my lawyer and my parents and take on one of the biggest companies in the world and this legend through to all its forms. But so you say that the emotions we feel... They're messages, and we get to decide how to react to them. Can you just talk a little bit about this? Because I think this is so important in this day and age, particularly when young people, I think, are so prone to turning away from discomfort and and how problematic that is. Yeah, absolutely. So I think this is one of the the problems is that it's so easy nowadays to avoid and, and turn away. And what we see is that I like to think of it as, it's almost like our mental muscle. Either you can train it and you can train that that mental muscle to turn that alarm down or you train it to turn it up. And whenever we avoid things, we train to turn that alarm up because our brain goes, 
oh, we're avoiding this. This must actually be dangerous. And if we do that enough, well, all of a sudden you're scared to death of approaching anybody else in, you know, in a line or with younger people who I talk to, like sometimes they're scared to death of like making phone calls because they've, you know, they've avoided it all, all their life. And it's easier to text than, than to make that call. Well, I'm all about, okay, we got to train that mental muscle to show us that we're okay. And the way to do that is embracing discomfort. And one of the, the, the key things to do that is to like, instead of feeling those emotions that tell you like, hey, turn around, get away from this moment, etc. Instead of like seeing those in the negative light is seeing them as like, hey, this is just my body warning me that like here I'm I'm doing something that is a little outside of the norm. So I can either pay attention to it, I can either heed its warning, or I have the choice and freedom to say, you know what, thanks for the message, but I'm still going to go through with this because, you know, it's not actually that dangerous or this means a lot to me. So I'm going to continue forward. Yeah. So you spoke about Alex Honnold in your book and I was had the pleasure of uh, having Alex on actually very shortly after Free Soto had come out. So people didn't realize who he was and he was walking through the BBC and I was like, guys, you don't realize this guy has really done something impressive. They were having photos actually with people from Strictly Come Dancing at the time. And I was like, wrong crap. Anyway, I had Alex on and we spoke about fear. And he said, you know, a really valuable question to ask yourself is, am I actually in danger? We're so rarely in danger. Well, maybe sometimes we are when we don't realize it, but more often than not, certainly compared to the mythical yesteryear of cavemen and saber-toothed tigers and all that stuff. But, um, you know, asking yourself that question and then when you realize, okay, my body's not in danger, I'm not doing anything wrong. Often then for me, when those feelings of anxiety or discomfort come up, it can actually be a call to, hey, here's a chance to lean into that and expand my comfort zone and grow. So just to give a quick example, because it's easy to speak from our age, but with our little girl, I'm always, without going overboard, trying to just push her into lean into the discomfort and welcome that feeling. Make friends with that feeling because what might have been back in the day before phones and all that, when, when we were queuing and we had to just queue or when we were waiting for a train and we just had to, to sit there, these feelings, we weren't so able to distract ourselves. What might have been back then just a sort of normal feeling of nervousness now is serious anxiety. So I'm like, no, turn towards it and embrace it and lean into it because that's actually where the growth is. And, and, you know, I'm glad you brought up and, and this is often people say, think like big stressors and all that, but it's really the small stuff. You know, you just mentioned there, it's like, it's standing in a line and being okay with being bored instead of giving into that anxiety and grabbing your phone and starting to scroll because like that will soothe that, that anxiety or stress. So it, it really is, is we can either, you know, become friends with our inner world or we can make it kind of uh, almost as if it's a foreign object and, and I think too often when we avoid it becomes this foreign thing where it's like uh-oh here's some stress here's some anxiety like go in the other direction and I'm it, I, I love that you're doing that with your kid because like so often early on we teach kids to kind of avoid because we just repeatedly tell them all the dangers that are in the world and and from a point of protection but what they do is they learn like oh 
well, anything that causes threat, I'm going to avoid instead of, you know, maybe exploring it or sitting with it or whatever have you. That leads us into part four, the difference between responding and reacting. And actually, you give that example of, which relates to this, of people, if they're stuck in a room on their own, like how it's torture, right? And there's that famous quote, I can't remember who said it, you know, all the problems of man could be solved if, if you could sit in a room with no distractions. And, and and this is why, and you talk about meditation, you talk about altered traits. I spoke to Daniel Goleman about this, big fan of his. And this is, I think for me, why meditation is so valuable is it's not, I'm trying to get anywhere. This sort of idea of clearing your mind, it's actually just getting comfortable being. And actually what I've noticed now is in the West, we're such a culture of doing, aren't we? Of You feel guilty if you sit on your backside for five minutes, right? But the more and more, and I think this comes from training that muscle through meditation, through through sitting on trains and just staring out of windows or whatever it may be. I love just sitting there doing nothing. And in time, you can go from having your internal world, as you put it, being this scary, boring, terrible place to, to actually, you realize that is where the peace is. And until you turn around, you're missing that. And not only that, it's kind of tormenting you. Yeah, I mean, you nailed it right there. And I'm in 100% agreement because what happens is we we kind of live in a reactive world where we're like the dog who sees a squirrel and just, you know, going from squirrel to squirrel and going crazy with our head. Well, that that's what happens here is that in, instead of being able to kind of just sit with who we are and our being and you know, the world that is going by, we just always look for the shiny objects. And that trains our brain to literally be stressed out because it is always looking for something better to do. Why? Because we've trained it to look for something better to do. Every time we, I'm not, I'm not here to hate on phones, but like every time we like, you know, pick up our phone, you know, for maybe the listeners, there's a study that showed that something like 90% of people have felt like a phantom vibration. Like they felt like their, their phone was vibrating or making noise or whatever. And they go and check and there's nothing there. Well, why does that occur? Because we've trained our brain that like, hey, focus and check on this thing a million times. Well, it's the same with other stuff. So to me, it really is. Again, I talked about kind of wrapping Buddhist ideas into uh, into kind of modern stuff is like, one of the ways to train toughness or resilience is literally just sitting. And there's data behind this. You know, one of my favorite studies real quick was they took meditators who were expert at, at just had spent hours mindfulness. And then they took your average Joe and they said they just applied a very hot probe to their wrist. And then they looked in their brain with fMRI to see what was happening. Well, the average Joe was freaking out beforehand. They freaked, they freaked out during it, and then they freaked out afterwards. It just lingered. You looked at the meditators, no stress beforehand. When the probe gets applied, they, they say, oh, this is hot, but their fear center doesn't go through the roof because they realize that someone's going to take this off and not danger because I'm in a lab. And then after the probe is removed, like they go back down to zero, you know, normal. And, and, and like, well, what else is like toughness, resilience, except like maybe not dealing with that physical pain, but it's everything. It's like, well, how do we respond to stress? Well, literally just practicing sitting can do that. And if you don't like the idea of meditation, well, 
sit there on the train and look out the window. Like, I don't, I don't care what you call it or how you do it. Drive in your car without listening to the radio or a podcast or what have you. Like, go, go on a walk without headphones. Like, be alone in your, you know, and experience the world. And if you do that, that alarm will come down. Yeah, absolutely. And I know you said you don't want to hate on fines, but on the back of your book, you've got Cal Newport, who another just top, top bloke. He and I were chatting and and actually I spoke to Sam Harris who said a similar thing around like we've never had to be bored before. Now, funnily enough, so tonight I'm I'm due to be going out for a drink with a friend of mine. I haven't seen him, well, I haven't had a drink with him for three, four months, maybe longer. And the last time we went out for a drink, I, I said this exact question to him. I said, when was the last time you were bored? And he couldn't answer. And so I was like, and I was like, I went to the bar and I said, right, when I go to the bar, just resist that urge to pick up your phone and, and just sit with it, right? And right there is an opportunity to and not distract ourselves because I think it's so easy because it's so normalized. You know, you drive down the street now, or walk down the street, everyone's doing that, aren't they? In one form or other. It's like acceptable, although it is an, an addictive behavior. But like even just that little moment of, okay, someone's going to the bar. It's not going to be long. I'm not going to look at my phone. I'm just going to sit. There you are. And it's just, it's hilarious that we're talking about doing hard things. And perhaps one of the best takeaways, if not the best takeaway is, hey, sit on your ass and do nothing. You know, it's hilarious because we think, and again, we think of the hard things as like, oh, I'm going to go you know, do this crazy exercise or, you know, put myself through this miserable experience. And the hard thing is, is just literally doing nothing. And, and I, I think it's, it, and it actually works. And you know, the other thing is actually, I was reading a study the other day. Um, so this is in the book, but that looked at, well, does that coping behavior of feeling boredom and then picking up your phone, does that actually help us? And in terms of, happiness, levels of sadness, all that, it actually makes us worse. It makes us feel more anxiety. There was a research study that looked at this. So even our coping mechanism like fails us, but we keep doing it because it's like the simple behavior that we think makes us feel feel better. Again, it's that that kind of addictive behavior. So, you know, li- listeners, if you're you're learning nothing, it's just like, Find some, find some moments where it's just like you and you're doing nothing and that will lo- literally make you tougher. You can't understate, I think, how transformative just being and just sitting can be. It, we laugh about it, but it, it really just can be utterly, utterly transformative. Right. Last couple of things, Steve. I wanted to ask you about um, something that I, in terms of doing hard things, and I, you don't talk about it at length. I'm not actually sure if it came up hugely, but the importance of hard conversations. So particularly in in the UK, in England, sweep things under the carpet. Don't upset the apple cart, leave it alone. And what I've learned in my life is having difficult conversations is, and sometimes let's say getting help with difficult conversations, you know, through therapy or whatever, that is so, so important. And I think one of the bravest things you can do is having hard conversations. There's something you just know is going to be uncomfortable. And I want to give just a quick example. A friend of mine, and I've heard you talk about this actually, about research about people who nearly get divorced, but then don't get divorced. And actually they tend to be happier than the people who do. And a friend of mine was um, a few years ago going through a, a difficult time with his wife. And he was like, we can't communicate. 
And I was like, why don't you get some help with that? You know, why didn't you get some couples therapy? And he's like, oh, you know, no, like we're adults. We should be able to do this. And I'm like, why? Like, I, I don't remember ever being taught how to have good communications or ever have any models. And I know for a fact that you're happy to go and pay good money to work on your golf swing. And trust me, as important as getting your handicap down is, it's not as important as being able to have hard conversations. In terms of hard things, this is another one of those kind of not obvious ones, but navigating hard conversations, which like all things gets easier the more you do it. You know, it's the same thing as everything else we've talked about is our tendency is to avoid. And whenever you whenever you avoid the thing, the thing grows, right? The stress around it grows and the you don't solve the actual problem. So I think with the hard conversations, absolutely, like we need to go towards them. And I think what it is, is we're so scared of that like stress or pain that we might feel initially from from tackling this hard thing that we avoid it, not realizing that that stress and pain from going towards it is temporary. And on the other side of it is often like understanding and growth which over the long haul, like leaves us feeling so much better. So it's like the short term gets in the way of the long term benefit. And, you know, maybe to help listeners is, again, I was I was reading this uh, study that came out not too long ago after the book came out, but it took a hard conversation, which is in America, it took people and it made them from uh, either side of the political spectrum. They made them talk to each other. Okay, which in America is kind of a disaster. So here's what the study found is that they said that like when they just said, hey, you're going to talk to someone from the other side of the political field or they said, hey, try and try and learn from someone else. The conversation was a disaster. You know, it didn't go well. They didn't like the other person. Afterwards, they rated it as like, you know, this was really stressful and horrible. But if they framed instead, when they, they told these people who st signed up for the study, they said, you know what, you're going to have a difficult conversation and I want you to embrace that and just go towards the difficult part. What happened is afterwards they reported they didn't agree on everything, but they respected the other person. They saw them as a human being and they rated the conversation as more productive and beneficial in it. And that's where I think if we can have that in a political, you know, minefield that is the U.S., then I think that applies to everything else as well, is that a lot of it is the framing. If you have to have that conversation, we'll sit down and be like, hey, this is going to be tough. Like, we need to go towards that. Um, but overall, we're trying to, you know, grow as people and, and frame it in that light. We're going to do better. And as you wonderfully said is, if you don't have that ability because you're too close to it, guess what? That's why we have experts. That's why we have therapists. That's why just like I would coach you on how to, you know, run faster or what have you, or deal with the mental struggle of running. We have people who can do that from a conversation standpoint. So take advantage of that. And I think the world would be so much better if we could embrace that and have those conversations instead of, just avoiding them. Do you know what? Beautifully put, Steve. You're uh, as gifted at talking as you are at writing. And I just think that's such a lovely message in terms of not avoiding, but accepting and even welcoming. And you were talking really in terms of, you know, the external, a Republican and a Democrat. But 
the same applies inwardly as well, right? And so I think this accept and welcome, don't avoid the message you just said, I think outwardly and inwardly, just the most powerful message. And I just want to finish with a little quote that, that finishes your book, which is just real toughness is embracing your common humanity. It's not old school toughness. Be who you are. That's real toughness. So that's vulnerability, humanity, authenticity, the opposite of the 80s tough guy, you know, Arnie with the muscles. Now forget that. Go and sit in a room and be vulnerable. That's 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 what we're saying here, isn't it? Uh, spot on. That's that's the message. It runs a little bit counter to what you might think, but it runs counter because it actually works. And that's where all the research, psychology, everything points to, which is, again, the tough things are often the simplest, which are in inwards and in ourselves is being who we are, being, you know, sitting alone, having those difficult conversations. And if you do that, you're going to be in a good spot. Steve, it has been sincerely an absolute joy talking to you. I loved your book. There's just so much good stuff in here and so much research. I could see how much work you've put in and you fully deserve all the amazing people who have lined up to sing your praises. And, you know, and just as I said at the start, I so admire the actions that you've taken in your life as well. So just on every single level, Steve, I tip my cap to you and it's just been a real pleasure and uh, I'd love to chat again some, sometime soon because it's been lovely. It really has been lovely. Absolutely. So the same right back at you, Simon. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Life Lessons Podcast. I would be delighted to hear your thoughts, your ideas, your guest suggestions, your questions. Just get in touch via my website, simonmundy.com. And if you could share this episode with someone you know or on social media, I would be very grateful as it does really help people to find this podcast. That's it for now. I will be back with a bite-sized episode this Friday and another full-length episode next week. Until then, goodbye.